Hello and welcome to Alchemy Radio, the home of the open mind. Thank you for tuning in and hopefully you enjoy the show and the variety of guests that we bring to you as regularly as we possibly can. As I'm sure you're aware, we're currently free, completely non-profit and available on demand from alchemyradio.net and iTunes and our listenership is increasing every day along with the associated costs. So any donations that you would like to offer would be gratefully accepted. The donate button is on our website and you can subscribe and do all kinds of different things on there as well. Follow us on Twitter, that's twitter.com forward slash alchemyradio and we're on Facebook as well. It's always great to hear from you with your feedback, guest suggestions and other input. So, on to the show. This week's guest is Robert Schock. Robert is a full-time faculty member at the College of General Studies at Boston University and has been since 1984. He earned his PhD in geology and geophysics at Yale University as well. In the early 1990s, Dr. Schock's geological analysis of the Great Sphinx of Egypt demonstrated that the statue is thousands of years older than the conventional dating of 2500 BC, bringing him worldwide fame. In his most recent book, Forgotten Civilization, Robert reveals scientific evidence of advanced civilization predating ancient Egypt, Sumeria and Greece, as well as the catastrophe that destroyed it nearly 12,000 years ago and what its legacy can teach us about our own future. Robert, welcome to Alchemy Radio. How are you? Very good. It's a pleasure to be here. The pleasure's all mine. And myself and Stevie, the show producer, we've been close followers of your work for a long long time and it's really great to have you on to have an in-depth discussion about that work but before we delve into your research and your writings tell us a little bit about your background and I suppose how you went from the blank canvas that we all begin with to where you are now. (laughs) I don't know are we really a blank canvas when we start? I'm not sure about that. That's a good question actually. It is. And in fact, there's a lot of evidence. It's a different topic, but there's a lot of evidence that we don't start as blank canvases. That in fact, we're accumulation of uh, things that came before us. But that's another topic for another day, maybe. But uh, I think what you're asking is, how did I get into the whole business of ancient civilizations and pushing back ancient civilization? Yeah. And there are a couple of different answers to that. Well, first off, a little background. I uh, am a geologist. I received my Ph.D. from Yale University in geology and geophysics. But before going to graduate school, even before going to um, undergraduate, I went to George Washington and majored in geology and anthropology. Even before that, I was always interested in ancient civilizations and in the past. It's just one of these things that, you know, that was my type of thing. I wasn't a sports person or, you know, other hobbies. I was interested in ancient civilizations. And probably part of that came from my grandmother. I'm sure part of it came from my grandmother, who was very interested in antiquity, but she was also a theosophist. And if people are familiar with classic theosophy, she was very intelligent, very open-minded, should we say, and was very critical in the sense of being skeptical and looking at all the data, but she also did not dismiss things out of hand without, um, you know, really looking at the evidence. So I feel that that's something I picked up from her, which has helped me ever since. So when you talk about the blank slate, maybe that's something I learned literally by you know, when I was by the time I was six or eight years old from her, and it's stayed with me ever since. So I was always interested in ancient civilizations. I went to graduate school at Yale. I actually did not study ancient civilizations. I was 
studying something even more ancient that was the history of the earth going back billions of years and that fascinated me paleontology etc etc i had to uh, graduate eventually even though i loved graduate school i was you know there four years i graduated got my phd had to get a job ended up at boston university where i still teach 30 years later after I got to Boston University in the late 1980s, I was introduced through a fellow faculty member to this rogue Egyptologist, this independent Egyptologist named John Anthony West. Yeah. And he and I are now close friends. We've known each other for um, 25 plus years. But he introduced, I was introduced to him, I thought, this is guy's little, you know, what do I make of him? <laughs> uh, we got along, and he was an advocate, as many of your listeners may know, of what's known as the Symbolist School of Egyptology, or, well, let me put it that way, it's not mainstream Egyptology at all, mm. it's based on the work of Schwaller de Lubitsch, who is now long deceased, who basically said that... Egypt was a legacy of an older civilization and that Egypt was much more sophisticated than classical Egyptologists have given ancient Egypt Egyptians credit for. And part of what Schwaller said in literally one or two lines in one of his books was that the Sphinx is older than dynastic Egypt based on weathering that you can see on the body of the Sphinx. John Anthony West said, Immediately, this is a geological question. He had a friend at Boston University, the fellow faculty member, who he was talking to and said, you know, if you ever know a geologist who might be interested in looking into this problem, let me know. And sure enough, that faculty member knew me. We were teaching in the same college. He was an English professor, so not even a scientist, but we knew each other. He introduced me to John Anthony West. And as a result, I took my first trip to Egypt in 1990, specifically to study the Great Sphinx from a geological point of view. And the Great Sphinx is probably where you really came to prominence in the public consciousness because you came out with some what were perceived as pretty wild statements about the Great Sphinx at the time. Tell us a little bit about that, Robert. Yes, yes. So this this is really where I came to public prominence. Before the Great Sphinx, I guess I was just known in certain academic circles for some of my geological work, my paleontological work. But I went to Egypt in 1990 with John Anthony West initially to study the Great Sphinx from a geological point of view. And there were a couple of observations I made immediately, literally immediately on meeting the Sphinx for the first time. I still remember it very clearly. Number one was, sure enough, the weathering features that you can see on the surface, just standing there with a geological eye looking at the Sphinx, the weathering that you see on the Sphinx is not compatible with the current hyper-arid Sahara Desert conditions that we've had on the Giza Plateau, where the Sphinx and the pyramids, the Great Pyramids, sit. We know that has been Sahara Desert, hyper-arid, very, very dry for the last 5,000 plus years. What you see on the body of the Sphinx 
and the walls of the Sphinx enclosure. And it's very important for people to realize if they haven't been there, that only the head of the Sphinx sits above ground level. The body is actually carved down into the bedrock. And it has preserved these weathering features on the walls of the enclosure around the Sphinx, on the body of the Sphinx, and they are simply textbook illustrations, if you would, of precipitation, rainfall, and what rainfall and water runoff does to limestone rock. And it's very classic. It's not caused by wind and sand, as you would expect if it was Sahara age. So immediately I realized that there was an incongruity here, that the weathering on the Sphinx had to go back to an earlier climatic regime. We know a lot about the ancient climate of North Africa, of Egypt in particular. We know that was much more moist, much more temperate, much more rainfall um, prior to about 5,000 years ago. So I said the obvious as a geologist, the core body of the Sphinx must go back to that earlier period. Now, the Egyptologists went crazy over this because according to them, the Sphinx was carved de novo from scratch about 2500 BC, Old Kingdom times. It was not pre-3000 BC. And not only was I saying based on the evidence that it was pre-3000 BC, I said that based on the level and degree of weathering, it had to be several thousand years prior to that. So initially I was saying at least 5,000 BC. And then the, you know, it, it just escalated from there. I put together a lot of data on this. I did under, um, under the ground uh, below the surface level. I uh, did uh, seismic work with a guy named Tom DeBecky, a geophysicist named Thomas DeBecky. We did subsurface gathering of data that confirmed that the subsurface weathering was not compatible with a mere 4,500 years old that was much older. Without going into great detail, we found a chamber under the left paw of the Sphinx. And we had enough data very quickly after several trips to Egypt in 1990-1991 that I presented a paper at the Geological Society of America annual conference in 1991. So this huge conference of geologists, international, thousands of geologists were there. I presented the data. They all agreed with me didn't have a problem with it, and it made sense to them. So that was fine. That was great. Those were my colleagues, my scientific colleagues, and they were convinced. Hmm. The Egyptologists, though, went insane. They went ballistic. They said this was impossible. This was crazy. You know, they told me that uh, people back at the time I was talking about were incapable of carving something like the Sphinx. They pointed out that the head of the Sphinx is a dynastic head. Now, they, of course, ignored the very fact that I said that all along. The second thing that I immediately noticed when I first saw the Sphinx on the first day in the first three minutes was that the head is too small for the body. Yes, it's a dynastic head, but it's a recarved head. It's not the original head. I think that the Sphinx was 
originally a lion. That's my speculation. But the head was heavily eroded in weather. It was recarved. So it's proportionally too small for the body. And it doesn't take a, I was going to say, it doesn't take a genius to see it. It's out of proportion to the body. Mm. Uh, and it's been recarved. So it's a dynastic head. Essentially, the dynastic Egyptians took this much older, badly eroded statue and you know, reused it, and which is very common with ancient cultures, that you reuse material from your predecessors. You reuse material you find on site. So the geologists were convinced, to make a long story short, that Egyptologists went ballistic, they went crazy, there were headlines around the world. It escalated from there to try to make this story not too long. The Egyptologists were so upset about that they basically... I realized this in hindsight. I didn't know it at the time. They basically decided they had to get rid of me. So what did they do? In 1992, a year after the Geological Society of America conference, actually not a year, it was the next year, it was a few months afterwards, right. from late 1991 to early 1992, they decided, well, there's another big international meeting. We'll get shock there. I'm saying this in hindsight. I didn't realize it was um, planned this way mm. on their half. So there was American Association for the Advancement of Science annual meeting, and they scheduled a special debate on the age of the Sphinx, where I would come, and Thomas DeBecky, the geophysicist I'd been working with, would come. We would argue for an older Sphinx, some prominent um, Egyptology types would come, a guy named Mark Lehner in particular, he would argue for the traditional Egyptological date of 2500 BC, and we would hash it out and, you know, supposedly look at the data and come to some conclusion. So I thought that was fine. You know, I'm all for looking at data, and I didn't really care one way or another how old the Sphinx was at the time. I didn't have a lot of vested interest in it. I was just calling it the way I saw it as a geologist. So we go to the AAAS meeting, and very quickly it became evident to me once it started that they were not interested, the Egyptologists were not interested in looking at data. They were not interested in discussing this rationally. It was essentially, let's get shock, get, you know, myself. Uh, let's essentially lynch him. Let's make sure he never talks again. Let's just put him down, put him in his place. Mm. Uh, they literally did not want to look at the data. Uh, so, I mean, it was very, was very disconcerting to me by the time it was over. Robert, just to interject for a second, would you care to speculate as to why this is? Because it's one thing that's always fascinated me. I mean, Egyptologists, many of them, uh, those in their conventional wisdom are quite well known for completely shutting down any alternative or revisiting of the accepted party line, so to speak. And it, it always strikes me as being disproportionate. I mean, why do they totally flatline reject any kind of uh, further study that is outside of their existing paradigm? Yeah, I, that has fascinated me too over the years because I've felt it firsthand. And, well, it's a very strange thing. So, so using the AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science debate that we had in 1992, I was amazed that they did not want to look at data. They weren't interested in science. It's since been made 
evident to me by other sources, people talking to me, and even publications, that Egyptologists tend not to look at scientific data. It's sort of outside their realm. The classical Egyptologist, I think to this day, and certainly 20-some years ago, when I was first getting involved with this, is not coming from a scientific background. They're coming more from a, we'll call it art history background, or literary background. And to the Egyptologists, certainly in 1992, that I was, quote, debating, unquote, it, using scientific evidence was very, very alien to them. They were incredibly conservative. I found Egyptologists incredibly conservative. I've spoken at other, you know, classic Egyptological conferences. Whatever they learn, and I don't want to sound belittling, but whatever they learn in Egyptology 101 tends to be what they perpetuate. Mm. There's an incredible inertia in the field. And I, this goes, this is actually very dangerous. I've been at some Egyptological conferences where you've had astute Egyptologists who come from a different background point out, for instance, the inertia in the field, not even having to do with the Sphinx or the deity, but for instance, what was the racial types within Egypt? The classical view is that they were, quote, white, unquote, not to mm. use politically uncorrect um, terminology, but in fact, if you look at the real scientific evidence, it's much more diverse. In America, there's a couple of uh, Egyptologists who have been making the argument very strongly that the Egyptians were essentially black or African versus more Mediterranean, at least in the early dynastic, and they've got good evidence for that, including DNA evidence. I'm using this as an example, yet the classical Egyptologists of the old school, they don't want to deal with that. They don't want to see it. They just dismiss it. it it's a very strange field in that sense of the inertia. Geology, I think, has the advantage that we are used to major changes in geology. And I want to give a quick example of that. So we can discuss the ins and outs of plate tectonics hmm. or you know, it used to be called continental drift, but it is a major paradigm, the major worldview within geology today, for better or worse. Um, uh, and when I say for better or worse, because, uh, you know, field is always changing. Plate tectonics now is not what it was when I was in graduate school. You know, there's always changes. But it's a major paradigm that was not in place when my professors, the ones I had in graduate school and undergraduate, were coming up through the ranks. It's a very new shift, total shift in the way the Earth as a whole is viewed. So geologists have seen within the last generation or two a major change in the encompassing paradigm, the overarching paradigm of their entire field. Nothing like that has ever happened in Egyptology, except some people have suggested when I came along and said that the Sphinx and maybe some other structures in Egypt go back to a much earlier civilization. So, you know, for them, I guess this is a major paradigm change that they just can't accept and they don't want to accept. Uh, they resorted even in the early 90s, or especially in the early 90s, to putting all kinds of words in my mouth. The next thing you know, they're saying, you know, we know that the Sphinx wasn't built by aliens. Uh, 
etc. And of course, I was never talking about aliens at all. I was talking yeah. about science and geology. The only thing is, from their point of view, they certainly didn't shut you up, did they? No, no, no. Actually, it backfired on them, in a sense, because they thought, I believe now, in hindsight, they thought by essentially trying to string me up, if you would, at the uh, American Association for the Advancement of Science meeting, I sometimes semi-joke that if it had been the year 1600, they would have tied me to a stake and lit the fire as they did to Bruno. Yeah. Uh, but instead, they tried to do the best they could in 1992. But it had the opposite effect. It uh, brought it to public attention. All of a sudden, this debate was making the media. NBC picked up on it. There was a documentary that was produced called The Mystery of the Sphinx that uh, John Anthony West and I and Thomas DeBecky are in. And that was actually aired in 1993 during what was called Sweeps Week. Tens of millions of people saw it initially. So it really had the opposite effect that all of a sudden, everyone in the public I say everyone, you know, lots of people in the public were aware of something mm. that they would never have been aware of if the Egyptologists hadn't made such a fuss about it, you know, reacting against it. And that's exactly what they did not want. They didn't want this to become a public spectacle. They wanted to get rid of me and never hear about it again. I talk, I, can I put a little plug in? I talk about this at some length in my uh, book, Forgotten Civilization. Which uh, is, of course, the uh, most recent book. My most recent book, Forgotten Civilization. And, I, of course, I talk about it in earlier books and papers. But now, with Forgotten Civilization, I'm sort of have 20 years of hindsight to discuss it. And that's the really fascinating thing about it. Because if we go back to uh, the time of the Sphinx, if you like, that is the early 90s and uh, your time of the Sphinx. Um, essentially what happened there it was the rabbit hole was really open for you and it led on to a complete examination of so many different realms of what I like to call forbidden history and forbidden knowledge and forbidden science and it's all culminated now in the tie-in with Forgotten Civilization which of course also examines the role of solar outbursts in the past, the future, Gobekli Tepe, which I would like to talk about in Turkey, because that times ties in, of course, with dating and aging. And how was the process of writing Forgotten Civilization for you, Robert? Because you've so many books before that and so many linked but differing topics. But it really is a kind of a nice synopsis of them all with a lot of new information, too. Was it, it was was it more enjoyable to write or how did how was it for you? The, the writing Forgotten Civilization, yeah, I would say in some ways it was the most enjoyable book to write to date. Of course, I'm working on other projects right now. But I feel that Forgotten Civilization really has tied a lot of things together for myself. The process of writing, I find, and I think most writers and scientists will tell you this and other researchers and scholars, by Putting it together, having forcing yourself to write it up and put it together cogently helps you clarify it and reflect on it yourself. And that was, uh, I enjoyed it. It was it was enjoyable to write. I have gotten a lot of positive feedback. People are enjoying it as a book. As I said, and as you just pointed out, thank you. It uh, is both a recounting of things that happened as 
far back for me personally in the 1990s, right up to the present day. And Gebekli Tepe is incredibly important, if I could comment on that just for a few seconds. Absolutely, I'd love to hear about that. More than a few seconds. So getting back, and I don't mean to dwell on it too much, but it opened a lot of avenues of research. One of the things that was said at the 1992 AAAS meeting where they wanted to get rid of me, Mark Lehner, the Egyptologist, who, it's very ironic, he went to Yale. I have to admit that. He went to <laughs> Yale. He get, received his PhD at Yale in Egyptology. He actually studied the Great Sphinx as his dissertation at Yale. So it's a very bizarre situation, and it also explains, I think, part of what you were asking about, why the reactionary approach to my work, more or less, why were they so conservative? So here you have Mark Lehner, he did his PhD at Yale on the Sphinx, and I'm basically nullifying or contradicting a lot of what he said in his PhD. And I went to Yale too, but I was in a science, I was in geology and geophysics, he was in Egyptology, art history, so coming from very different backgrounds, and I was essentially refuting a lot of what he said. So he had very vested interest and um, keeping the status quo. So that's another, again, personality aspect to it. But one thing he said at the AAAS debate was, and I'll paraphrase here, but it's in the book, the direct quote, if, the, if civilization goes back to this early remote period that I'm talking about, because at that time, people thought that civilization did not go back before three to 4,000 B.C., Anywhere in the world, period. End of story. People have told me, if you're pushing it back before three to 4,000 B.C., just forget it. We already know how they knew. I don't know. Mm. But they already knew that civilization could not exist. So he literally said at the debate that uh, civilization doesn't go back that far. If civilization really goes back that far, give me evidence. Where is there evidence anywhere of civilization that back that far, you know, he said it was absolutely impossible. Everyone knows, our, all the archaeologists know, that if you're talking five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten thousand BC, people were just hunters and gatherers. They did not build cities. They did not carve large monuments. They did not do sophisticated things. Other Egyptologists chimed in and said they didn't have the social structures or the social organization to be carving something like the Sphinx. And Mark Leonard goes on and on about this. Show me pottery shards from some earlier civilization. And the problem was, for me at the time, 1992, there was no further evidence that I could conjure up, that I could bring up at that time. And sometimes I use the analogy that in the early 19th century, 1830s or so, the first dinosaur was actually found and identified as such. Well, people said, how could this be? How could you have, you know, 30-foot lizards roaming the earth? Show me other evidence for it. Well, you have to find the first one somewhere. But that wasn't a very good answer for from the Egyptological point of view. Mm. So that's 1992. 1995, and again, the chronology is important here. 1995, three years later, Dr. 
Klaus Schmidt of the German Archaeological Institute starts excavating a site in southeastern Turkey. It's northern Mesopotamia, classic Mesopotamia, but in the far north, starts excavating a site that is now called Gebekli Tepe. So three years later, he is very slow, he is very methodical, he's the most meticulous archaeologist in you know, classic German style. It doesn't really start to come out in the scientific literature for a number of years. What he's finding doesn't really make popular awareness. When I say popular awareness, even in academic circles, right. uh, for you know over 10 years, 15 years even, only in the last few years. But what he has is an incredibly sophisticated site. In my opinion, and I discuss this, I discussed this at length in Forgotten Civilization. In my opinion, clearly we can call this evidence of advanced civilization. The kicker is that it dates back to 10,000 or so BC, actually the end of the last ice age. The earliest portions are just before the end of the last ice age at Gebekli Tepe. So now we're talking 9,000, 10,000 BC. The entire site was buried over purposefully 8,000 BC, 10,000 years ago. This is older than I was talking about initially for my preliminary redating of the Great Sphinx. If I'd had this evidence in 1992, you know, the Egyptologists wouldn't have been able to say anything. Uh, they still don't want to acknowledge it. They just sort of hold their nose and look the other way. Mm. But uh, Gebekli Tepe, I think, really reconfirms and cooperates what I've been talking about for over 20 years. And a couple of things there, Robert, with regard to Gobekli Tepe. Number one is the dates have been verified, so it's not even open to question on this. And number two, you mentioned the site has been covered over deliberately, and you're not talking about natural means here. Can you go into that a little bit? Because that's fascinating to me. Both of them are very, very important uh, aspects. First off, let's talk about the covering. Hmm. Tepe is an incredible site, just for those that haven't seen it, and I have some little pictures on my website, if people want to go to my website, which is uh, www.robertshock, and my last name is spelled S-C-H-O-C-H, so Robert Shock, all one word, R-O-B-E-R-T, Robert, S-C-H-O-C-H.com. Also, as you know, in Forgotten Civilization, I have a color insert, 16-page color insert with photographs of Gebekli Tepe. And I point this out because visually Gebekli Tepe is an incredible site. It consists of rings of stone, uh, sort of Stonehenge-like. Uh, these pillars, some of the pillars are four and a half, five meters even, somewhere in that range tall. They're arranged in circles, sort of Stonehenge-like. They have central pillars, each circle of Pillars is about 12 pillars with another two in the center aligned. But that's where it ends when we compare it to Stonehenge. With all due respect to the British monuments, Stonehenge and the other European monuments are very rough-hewn stone. Mm. They're big, megalithic, you know, monoliths, but very rough-hewn. Anyone that's seen pictures of Stonehenge or has had the opportunity to visit Stonehenge knows that. 
That's not what we have at Gebekli Tepe. We have beautifully carved surfaces on these pillars. These pillars are almost um, razor thin proportionally. They're beautifully carved. They have reliefs on them of different animals. Some of the pillars are anthropomorphic. They represent humanoids, if you would, with hands, with arms, with a belt, loincloth. They're just absolutely incredible. So much more sophisticated in terms of the carving. There have been sculptures in the round found there. There have been th there are three-dimensional carvings, one in particular, sort of a lion or cat-like animal on one of the pillars. So it's incredibly beautifully carved. So yeah, very, very sophisticated. Based on the stratigraphy, the layers of soil and dirt and whatnot and what's in them. And I looked at this very closely on site. I've been there a number of times now to inspect it firsthand. And I spoke with Klaus Schmidt, Dr. Klaus Schmidt, about his finding. I am convinced, as he is, that the entire site was covered over intentionally. They basically took buckets and buckets of debris, probably baskets back then, baskets of debris filled in the entire site and covered it over by 8000 BC. We know it was by 8000 BC because stratigraphically and geologically, once it was covered over, you get rain there, the rain basically seeped through the soil, it formed mineral components, little stalactites on a microscopic scale. You can date those by radiocarbon dating. So we know the entire site was sealed by 8000 BC, which is fascinating because most sites are just abandoned and left to the wind and the rain and the dust and, you know, people, you know, maybe messing around with the ruins that survived. So this is beautifully preserved in that sense. And we know it was covered by 8000 BC. When you start analyzing organic debris within the fill that was used to cover it over, when you start looking at some of the organic debris that was used to build secondary walls, and I can get into that, there's several stages that come back to the Tepe, secondary walls, some of that goes back 9,700 9, BC, 9,800 BC, etc., based on radiocarbon dating. And the earliest dates we have are on secondary materials because you can't date the pillars directly because they're limestone pillars. Uh, so we know that the whole site was covered over by 10,000 years ago, 8,000 BC. We know that parts of the site go back to at least 10,000 BC. The latest comments from Klaus Schmidt, who's excavating it, is that he suspects parts of it go back even further. I also wanted to mention really briefly, it's a huge site. So you have these stone circles or stone enclosures, sort of Stonehenge-like. Four have been excavated more or less completely so far. Based on geophysical analysis, there's probably 20 to 20 or more stone circles there in total. So it's a huge site, which is even more amazing given how old it is. What was it for, or can you speculate on this, and why was it covered, Robert? Okay, what it's for, we, people, no one knows. That's an easy answer. But I think that it was in part uh, 
should we say the equivalent of a university 12,000 years ago, maybe for scientific analysis. Based on my analysis and other people have since picked up on this, I believe that it has astronomical correlations. I believe the central pillars were actually positioned astronomically looking out to the night sky, the southern sky, in particular the region of Orion, Taurus, and the Pleiades, which is interesting because you have those astronomical correlations in other very ancient sites, including uh, Egypt, and we could get into that if you want to. They were apparently tracking certain astronomical phenomena and taking precession. Uh, I don't know if everyone knows what precession is, but it's a very slow change in the positions of the stars over time. It's where we get the ages, uh, age of Pisces we're in now, we're going into the age of Aquarius, we were age of Aries 2,000 plus years ago. They were looking at these processional changes. I'm convinced based on analysis of differing positions of the central pillars in different enclosures that have been excavated so far. And this is the case, which I believe it was, this shows that they were incredibly sophisticated in the sense of making very, very subtle astronomical observations. So subtle that the standard paradigm says no one was aware of such subtle distinctions until maybe 2,000 to 3,000 years ago, and certainly not 10,000 to 12,000 years ago. Yeah. When you look at the pillars, there's lots of carvings on them of different animals, that type of thing. One possibility, and I'm not the only one to speculate in these terms, is that these may represent constellations, their view of the con what we would call constellations, as well as other things. The central pillars of one of the enclosures that look anthropomorphic with arms and hands, fancy belts, loincloths, I suspect actually represent Orion in the sky, the headless hunter in the sky. They even have a little, under one arm is a little dog-like creature, which may represent Sirius or the dog, stores, dog star or some other uh, constellation. And as a side note, I want to point out that in Germany, there has been found evidence that Orion, as Orion, as a hunter, as a human in the sky, was thought of that way as early as uh, 30,000, 35,000 years ago, so well into the Ice Age. Some of these constellations have kept their same form, should we say, in the human mind or have been passed down from generation to generation for literally tens of thousands of years. The deliberate burial was the other thing because that really, it's, it's something that's quite astonishing when one considers not just the scale of the undertaking that must have been, but when one speculates as to what the reasons might have been, did these people know at that time that something was coming and they needed to preserve what it was they had? Or What's your position on that, Robert? position is it was coming at that time. My position right now, and this is the subtitle of my book, Forgotten, Forgotten Civilization. The subtitle is The Role of Solar Outbursts in Our Past and Future. So this ties in with something that has fascinated me for decades, when I say decades, even before I got involved in the Sphinx. Mm. So it's funny how sometimes things come together, in some cases 
years and years later. I was always interested in the geological problem of how did the last ice age end. What we have at the end of the last ice age is a dramatic warming, dramatic changes in climate, and the most recent data in the last 10 years and less based on ice core data in particular from Greenland indicates that this dramatic change in climate, this dramatic warming was even more dramatic than anyone suspected. We used to talk in graduate school about, you know, dramatic warming would be within a few centuries. Uh, certainly we didn't even think in decades initially. Now it's very clear based on ice core data that we're talking about dramatic warming within years, within three years or less, and we can only say three years or less because that's the level of the data, it could literally have been overnight. So dramatic changes, how do you get these dramatic changes? You start looking at other data, there's isotope data for uh, solar activity. It turns out the sun was incredibly active at the end of the last ice age, 9700 BC. And putting lots of pieces of evidence together, petroglyphs if we wanted to get into that, et cetera, et cetera. I have, and I'm not the only one that's talking in these terms, but I've concluded that there was a major solar outburst at the end of the last ice age, circa 9700 BC, which essentially, as some popularizers would say, fried the Earth, that there were major solar flares, major coronal mass ejections that uh, hit the Earth's atmosphere, upper atmosphere, the magnetosphere. It caused dramatic warming. In some cases, it would uh, drive down to the ground. Literally, you think of balls of electrically charged particles moving at what are known as relativistic speeds, you know, close to the speed of light, hitting and this is not something we've seen in modern times, with the slight exception of the Carrington event, which was very, very small in the 19th century compared to what happened at the last Ice Age. Just remind so, us of the Carrington event, if you don't mind, Robert, for those who mightn't know what it is, please. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so let's talk about the Carrington event, then get back to the end of the last Ice Age. Yeah. In 1859, so remember the date, 1859, there is the Carrington event. Two major solar flares right after each other and coronal mass ejections. A coronal mass ejection you can think of as a big ball of supercharged electrical plasma or gases, electrical gases coming off of the sun and it hit Earth. Yet, you know, if it, something like that comes off the sun, it can go in any direction. But in 1859, we happen to be in the right place at the right time, the Earth, to be hit. It hit Earth. It hit the magnetosphere. It caused all kinds of geomagnetic storms in around Earth. It affected the ionosphere. It affected the ozone layer. People saw visions, if you would, or things in the sky, not visions. They were very real. They saw what they described as dancing figures in the sky. They looked sort of like stick figures dancing in the sky. What this was was plasma hitting the uh, magnetosphere, hitting the atmosphere, and causing the same types of phenomena as what we know as northern and southern lights, aurora borealis, aurora australialis, but at much lower latitudes, 
seen around the Earth and much, much more intense. So that was the Carrington event in 1859. It was actually fairly minor from a geological and astronomical point of view. But it was bad enough that at that time, the only widespread electrical devices or communication systems were the telegraph lines. It overloaded the telegraph lines, burnt down some telegraph stations, uh, caused just havoc to the primitive electrical systems of the time. If it happened today, if we had a Carrington event tomorrow, you and I would not be talking at the moment. Wow. It, would, it would knock out grid systems. It would knock out electricity in much of the civilized world. It would, not to be a fear monger, because I'm not, but I'm just being realistic, it, it would cause incredible havoc to modern electrical and electronic-based society. Mm. So there are a lot of, there are people in very high positions in some cases that don't want to talk about it a lot because they don't want to scare the, quote, public. But uh, the reality of a Carrington event hitting again is... Um, not at all remote. It's it's quite feasible. So getting back to the end of the last ice age, before yeah. I forget that thought, what you had was not just a Carrington event, but orders of magnitude more than a Carrington event. So you had virtually immediate evaporation of high latitude glaciers in some cases. You would have put incredible amounts of moisture into there as water and ice evaporate. You would have had torrential rains. Sounds very biblical, probably with good reason. You would have had earthquakes and uh, volcanic activity erupting. Why? Because when you release the pressure of kilometers of ice at high latitudes, that would have the cascading effect of releasing pressure on the crust, which would set off earthquake activ activity, set off volcanic activity, and the Serbia's a domino-type effect. Uh, we, this is not even hypothetical. Now with our minor, and I say minor relative to what happened at the end of the last ice age, our minor global warming today, the ice sheets of Greenland, for instance, in Iceland have been melting very quickly, and an order of magnitude, higher rate of earthquake activity and volcanic activity has been recorded. So, you know, this is not just theoretical. We know from real experience these things happen today. So getting back to Gebekli Tepe, something that's really interesting is that some of these pillars were knocked down before it was covered over 8,000 BC. They fell down, they were broken. When you're on site, and I can show this to people on site, and as a side note, I take people to Gebekli Tepe. I've taken several groups of people to Gebekli Tepe, and I'm putting together another uh, trip in July. If people go to my website, they can even sign up for that and see it firsthand. But when you're on site, you can see where in some cases the pillars got knocked over in ancient times. They hastily re-erected them, and they built these rubble walls between the pillars essentially to hold them up and to, I say, fortify the structure, it seems evident to me that there were catastrophes happening. They were trying to rebuild this structure, fortify it, almost turn it into a, I'll call it a fallout shelter, just because people can think in those terms, you know, that things were happening. Things were really degrading quickly. Even uh, Klaus Schmidt, uh, 
has come to the same conclusion as I have that some of the pillars were reused. They were recarving them hastily, trying to re-erect them. And eventually, I think it got to be too much because these solar outbursts would sort of come and then they would back off for a while. Then they would come again. They would back off the solar outbursts. And I think eventually it got too much to be too much and they abandoned the site. But before they abandoned the site, they did one final re-erection, putting pillars in place as to preserve, well, this is where they're supposed to be. Then they covered it all over, I think, my hypothesis is, to protect it so that maybe they could come back to it or someone else could find it and have it at least in some semblance of order versus just abandoning it, you know, leaving it and uh, letting it be destroyed by whatever, whatever was happening at the time. So that's my hypothesis as to why it was purposefully covered over by 8000 BC. As Klaus Schmidt has said more than once now, they spent apparently as much time and energy covering it over as they did building it in the first place. Now it was a different type of time and energy that's just throwing rubble in mm. to pack it all in, but it was still a major undertaking to do that. Incredible. And of course, that's all framed by the fact that this completely forces a rewriting of the history books in terms of what ancient meant and how far back civilization went. Absolutely. I think the story now, and I hope it will become the standard story in not too long, is that we had high civilization. We had sophisticated civilization at the end of the last ice age. There was a major catastrophe. That civilization was thrown back into a dark age that lasted thousands of years and did not reemerge until about 4,000, 3,000 BC. And then we have dynastic Egypt, we have Sumer or Sumeria in Mesopotamia, we actually have uh, civilization emerging again in the Far East and China. But these civilizations, dynastic Egyptians, for instance, which I'm most familiar with personally, they did not think that they had originated civilization. They themselves talked about an earlier civilization that went much further back, and they were a legacy of an earlier civilization. Uh, can I bring in Atlantis? Absolutely. Let's do it. <laughs> Atlantis. I, a funny story about Atlantis. Back in the early 1990s, uh, West got annoyed with this, John Anthony West. Mm. I refused to say the word Atlantis because back then and even today in some academic circles, it's such a, it carries such charged connotations that if an academic says they're interested in Atlantis in any serious way, other than maybe, you know, the Plato historians, uh, at least in the sciences, to say Atlantis, you know, immediately people dismiss you. But I think we can't dismiss it anymore. Plato talks about Atlantis as being a high civilization, a very sophisticated culture that is destroyed in a natural catastrophe. Yes, there's lots of other sort of overlay of a war between Atlanteans and the Athenians, that type of thing. But the bottom line is that he's talking about very ancient civilization and his dating, I think, is incredibly important. If you read Plato and what he says about Atlantis, he gives a very clear chronology. And if you convert that into modern terms, he says that Atlantis was destroyed 
by these catastrophes 9600 BC. The best geological dating for this dramatic catastrophe that ended the last ice age is 9700 BC. So I think those are virtually the same date. Um, I'll give Plato, you know, a hundred years leeway easily. <laughs> a lot of geologists even say 97 to 9500 BC. Plato says 9600 BC. And I am have come to take very seriously that, you know, this chronology is correct, that not Plato, but the people he got this from knew what they were talking about. Where did he say the Atlantis story came from? From Egypt. It was from the Egyptians. What do you think about where it may have been? Could Atlantis have been around the Egyptian area or where could it actually be? Would you care to speculate on that? Hey, no, no, I, I'll, I'll speculate, but I'll give you a different version. I think what is important and pivotal and most pertinent with Atlantis is what I was just mentioning, which is the dating of Atlantis. And if you start looking at the evidence we have and putting it together with Plato, it's, there's lots of interesting things. Plato talks very clearly about Atlantis, and there's this motif of circles and circles and circles within circles, rings around the city of Atlantis, etc. Now, I don't want to make too much of this, but what do we have at Gebekli? We have stone circles. We have stone enclosures that are circular in pattern. So, you know, maybe there's something there, maybe there is. I'm not saying that Gobekli Tepe is Atlantis, mm. but we also have evidence in Egypt, of course, from early civilization. What I think is really pertinent here is not a geographic position for Atlantis, but the concept of advanced civilization at the end of the last ice age. And as we start to put together evidence, I think that we may have had I hate to use the term global now because it may be a little premature, but certainly advanced civilization in various parts of the world. For instance, my wife Katie and I, just this past December, so we had the opportunity to go to Indonesia and see this megalithic site known as Gunan Padang, which has recently been studied. When I say recently, in the last two years, literally last two to three years, by Danny Hillman, an Indonesian geologist who received his uh, PhD in California, here in the U.S. So very well educated. I like him a lot. But more importantly, whether I like him or not, he does really good science in my assessment. He has a site that he's studying now called Gunan Padang, which was artificial, megalithic, and it also dates back to the end of the last ice age and I'm convinced shows the comparable level of sophistication as we're talking about for Gebekli Tepe, as we're talking about with the Sphinx and the structures uh, associated with the proto-Sphinx, I'll call it, in Egypt, all indicating that we have civilization back before the close of the last ice age. And I suppose another example of the distances between some of these sites would be Rapa Nui or Easter Island, because in the book Forgotten Civilization, you talk about Easter Island. And yeah. in fact, you describe a new discovery there to do with the Rongo Rongo texts. So what can you tell us about that? 
Yeah, so Rongo, Rongo, Texas, actually really important, and Easter Island is really pivotal. It's interesting. Easter Island, I think, is going to really break open in the sense of, you know, academically and scientifically, ultimately. Right now, the conventional view is that Easter Island, which is in the Pacific, it's sometimes referred to as the uh, most remote inhabited place on Earth. Mm. Uh, so this little island in the Pacific, which, uh, you know, Katie and I visited a couple of times. We were actually married there. You might know that from Forgotten Civilization. Yeah. The traditional point of view is that it was not colonized. It was not inhabited by humans until a mere maybe twelve or 1,500 years ago. Based on the evidence of the Moai, the big torsos, the big ha- heads and uh, torsos, the big statues there, and how they're s- covered with sediment in some cases. Lots of other evidence of uh, basalt moais, but we don't have basalt quarries on the island. I think that they're under the ocean, that they were covered over with the sea level rises of the end of the last ice age. I think we're going to find, I think we already have evidence that the civilization the sophistication, the um, people on Easter Island go back much, much further. But what's really pertinent here is the Rongo Rongo that you just brought up. Easter Island is often said to be the only Polynesian or Pacific island uh, to have its own indigenous script. This is the Rongo Rongo script, which is sort of a hieroglyphic type script. That's how most people describe it. But we don't think it's hieroglyphics at all. And I have to introduce something else here. There's a plasma physicist at Los Alamos National Laboratory named Dr. Anthony Perrot. I first met him about 2000 at a conference. He has studied plasma physics for decades and decades. He's one of the world's experts on plasma physics. What I'm talking about is high-energy Plasma discharges from the sun, from other stars, how they interact in outer space, how when the sun, for instance, has a major solar outburst, how the plasma, the electrically charged particles, would hit the upper atmosphere, how the interactions would take place, what you would see. He has been modeling this for years. So essentially, what would you see in the sky, for instance, during a major solar outburst? You would see what look like stick figures, what would look sort of anthropomorphically like stick figures, or maybe stick figures with bird heads that would uh, have little donut shapes on their sides. Very strange-looking stuff. And lo and behold, some years ago, he started looking at petroglyphs, engravings on rocks, these very ancient engravings around the world, and said, These are not stylized humans. These are not just stick figure humans. These are actually very, very good representations of plasma configurations you would see in the sky during a major solar outburst. And he has independently put together the hypothesis that there was a major solar outburst, as he says, in antiquity or prehistory, And he he has recorded from over 130 different countries around the world, including Easter Island, petroglyphs, engravings on stone from antiquity, from very ancient times, that seem to show the same forms indicating that people were observing a solar outburst 
first at some point. So I've tied this together. I've got the date in the sense I'm hypothesizing that what we're talking about is this major solar outburst at the end of the last ice age. Coming back to the Rongo Rongo glyphs, my wife Katie, and I have to bring her up because she deserves credit for this. We were in, on Easter Island, we're looking at all the sites. We became very interested in Easter Island for many reasons, including that it looks like it's much older. And she pointed out initially that the Rongo Rongo glyphs sure look like the petroglyphs Dr. Perrot has been studying, sure look like plasma configurations. And at this point, I'm convinced that the Rongo Rongo, quote, script, unquote, was initially a recording of what people were seeing in the sky during a major solar outburst. Now, could they have later used that to inspire them to turn it into a more conventional script? Yes. And the Rongo Rongo tablets that survive to this day, they're carved on wood, are certainly not, you know, thousands of years old. As far as we know, they don't go back to the end of the last ice age. But it's also evident that they are copies of copies of copies, sort of like Plato. Uh, the oldest Plato texts from most of Plato's works are only a few hundred or a thousand or 1,200 years old. They don't go back to Plato's time. Same with the Bible, etc. Uh, no one doubts so that they are real. So I think what we have in the Rongo Rongo may be a direct recording and recounting, if you would, of some of the uh, really incredible, awesome, fearsome sights that people saw in the sky at the end of the last ice age. And we're recording, not necessarily even for posterity, but because, you know, they're trying to figure out when is it going to come again, because this will come in waves, it will come in bursts. Uh, and they were sophisticated. I, I, before I forget, I wanted to mention Gebekli Tepe. We don't have writing per se from Gebekli Tepe. We don't have any materials that he may have written on, but on some of the stone pillars, there are symbols that are used repetitively. Some looks like sort of an H, some look like a C, some look like an H on the side. I wouldn't put it beyond possibilities that uh, these people were literate in the sense that they had some kind of symbolic notation, writing, whatever you want to call it. What are our hopes for the future? I mean, if the people in Gobekli Tepe were able to, I suppose, figure out that something was going to happen, is it something that we can do, or have we, or what's going to happen to us, is basically what I'm asking you, Robert. Uh, I, what's going to happen to us is, I have little doubt, and this is going to sound scary, and I suppose it is, I have little doubt that we're going to be hit by another major solar outburst at some point. And we are setting ourselves up for disaster right now because we are very vulnerable as a society. We are as vulnerable as I can imagine us being with our sophisticated electronics, uh, uh, electrical grid systems, all of that will be damaged or destroyed by a major solar outburst. So I really think we need to be working together, and this is one of my messages in Forgotten Civilization, too, that we need to be thinking about these things, because it's not a matter of if it could happen, it's a matter, from my point of view, as a geologist, when it will happen. Now, it could be somewhat into the future, it could be within the next year. I'm not predicting one way or another. 
what I will say is that there's a lot of indication now that the sun is incredibly unstable. It's incredibly variable. It was having a lot of activity previously. Now, some people are even talking about mini ice age. It seems to be going dormant. Mm. Uh, even if it's going dormant, it's creating big sunspots, but they're not necessarily exploding at the moment. I think some of them could explode in the future. I believe, you know, from a geological point of view, 1859, the Carrington event was yesterday from a geologist's point of view. Yeah. That could be the warning shot of what could happen. And I want to point out that the Carrington event happened during what's been termed a ho-hum solar cycle. Uh, at the end of the last ice age, based on isotope records and cores, uh, core samples, we see the sun undergoing incredible instability. So it becomes really active for a while, then it off the scale active, and then it becomes very inactive, then off the scale active again, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And is in in journals like Nature, for instance. So I mean, top. Top journals, there have been publications by astrophysicists pointing out that the sun is now going into this weird, variable, active period again uh, that it, we haven't seen for thousands and thousands of years. I suspect, and I believe based on the data, that there are a number of solar cycles. Everyone has probably heard of the sunspot cycle, 11-year cycle, the 22-year cycle. But there are other cycles on the order of hundreds of years. There's one that's on the order of 5,000 in some years. I talked about in Forgotten Civilization. Forgotten Civilization. But a major one, I believe, is this cycle of incredible variability and activity when the sun is in disequilibrium, it sort of jettisons and re then goes into a much smoother, more quiet period for thousands of years before it builds up more disequilibrium and has to re, if I could say, recalibrate itself. Yeah. And that seems to be about 12,000 or so year cycle. The last peak was at the end of the last ice age. We're now going into that period of high activity again. So... I, I think we have to be very careful. I personally, and Katie, my wife, and I follow this very carefully. All this weird weather we're getting seems to tie in with solar activity. I'm convinced the weird solar activity that we're getting, uh, there seem to be actually ties with earthquake activity. You know, most geologists, most conventional people don't want to think that, oh, solar activity could affect earthquake activity. But in fact, these are all linked. These are all connected. Um, when you're affecting the geomagnetic field of the Earth, that affects what's happening underground. We also know even subtle things that people never suspected before. Radioactive decay rates are affected by solar flares. They're affected by how far we are from the sun in our orbit around the sun. I talk about this also in Forgotten Civilization. I, and this is not just flighty, you know, data coming from nobodies. This is uh, people who have been studying this and in some cases have 15 years of data showing these correlations. You know, they might be small changes in radioactivity decay rates, but changes nonetheless, which by conventional um, science is not supposed to be occurring. And one thing I learned well, 
as a geologist is that very subtle changes sometimes can have very profound effects because everything is so interconnected. And a lot of what you've just said ties in quite well. I heard a very interesting interview with uh, a guy called Robert Felix quite recently who authored a book, I think it's called Not by Fire but by Ice um, or something something along those lines. And basically he spoke about... um, his thoughts that there would possibly be the coming of a new ice age and with specific reference to solar cycles and how we're currently at the end of a 500 year orbital stretch and he spoke about the 1600s when there was something I believe called a mounder minimum which was responsible basically for a little ice age for about 60 or 70 years and these things have all happened very very recently in the blink of an eye as you say in in historical terms. Yes, yes, yes. And actually, um, ice ages, so a lot of people, uh, let me make another comment about ice ages. Uh, ice ages and solar warming and changes in uh, solar variabilities, changes, uh, you know, instability of the sun, I'll call it that, uh, are often linked. When I was a graduate student at Yale, one of the favorite theories, based on very good evidence, I think, and I still think based on very good evidence, is that just before an ice age, or a mini ice age, we'll call it that, you could have major warming. Why? Because with major warming, whether it's caused by solar activity or otherwise, solar outburst, that's what I would speculate now, you have major warming, you put a lot of atmosphere, um, I'm sorry, you put a lot of moisture into the atmosphere, you get a lot of precipitation, uh, and that goes on for a while, but then you get to an inflection point or a tipping point where this atmospheric moisture is coming out at a faster rate, especially in northern latitudes, than it can evaporate or melt again. So then you start building up ice sheets again. So in some cases, it's almost counterintuitive to the average person. You get warming that then flips into a cooling cycle very quickly. Um, my point being here that a lot of these systems are are very fickle, if you would, to anthropomorphize, or uh, you know, very complex. And in some cases, it may be going one way, and then it can all of a sudden tip the balance and flip the other way. So, you know, bottom line is we just, you know, we don't have a lot of um, uh, modern data to get into the exact subtleties of what may occur. Well, we've interesting times ahead. There's no question about that. But speaking of the interesting times in the past, again, we'll go back to the fact that Forgotten Civilization is almost like um, a re-updating or a synopsis of all the work that you've done in the past. Is there any topic, and you've covered so many, is there any topic, Robert, that is really to this day that you really still think about and write about and talk about and it just it gets the blood flowing for you? What's, what's your big one? Oh, I mean, they all do. They all do. I haven't. I have not abandoned any of them. I think right now, more than anything else, maybe what I've been talking about, what we've been talking about, which is that I think we really have to pay pay attention to the sun. We really have to acknowledge that solar activity is a much more important influence than. Uh, Many people would want to believe, have been led to believe. I don't want to start getting too political here, but for instance, the whole concept that global warming, or I prefer to call it global climate change, because it's really 
climate changing, a lot more extremes, a lot more variability. The concept that that is caused by anthropogenic change or put simply by humans, humans pumping out green gas, greenhouse, you know, carbon dioxide and um, greenhouse gases and methane and whatnot uh, is a paradigm that we've lived with for several decades now. It's served a lot of vested interest, and I think it's starting to collapse uh, as I look at the data. When you look at the data from a geological point of view, for instance, we have very good data based on isotope data of oxygen, based on little bubbles of atmosphere that you can measure carbon dioxide, and very consistently, you have warming first, then carbon dioxide rises afterwards, not the other way around. Uh, and there's a good explanation for this, because as the, as the globe warms, it starts melting, for instance, tundra at high latitudes, it releases carbon dioxide, methane, the oceans start warming, they release carbon dioxide, then that has a cascading effect. Uh, sort of a snowball effect, if you would, or the reverse of a snowfall. You know, as it gets warmer, it gets warmer still because, in fact, yes, carbon dioxide, methane, and other gases are greenhouse gases. But to say it's all caused by uh, humans is sort of real hubris. And again, I'm not trying to be anti-environmental. I've, I'm a co-author of environmental science textbooks that, that's used in colleges, but I also think we need to look at the real data and uh, really get to the bottom of things. So there's there's one little pet thing. I don't want to be get you know be misinterpreted though. Should we stop using fossil fuels? Probably, or at least cut back. There are other good reasons for that, but it's not necessarily uh, global warming that should be the main driving factor. Uh, I think we need to get back and look at fundamentals like the sun and how the sun does not directly warm the earth. So it's not the sun. Well, the sun, of course, directly warms the earth. But what I'm saying is that some people dismiss the sun as being any factor in climate change because they say the variability of the sun is not that great to affect major climate change. But again, it's not that simple. It has to do with the sun influencing the magnetosphere influencing geomagnetic storms, influencing the amount of cosmic radiation that hits the atmosphere, which uh, causes more or less cloud cover, which then has a warming or cooling effect on the Earth. So again, it's a very, very complex system. And I think that too much of science in this field, and good science, or you know, when I say good science, academics have even oversimplified very complex situations. And we need to really figure out, you know, what's genuinely going on, uh, not just, you know, what is convenient to win a Nobel Prize. Well, there you go. And I think quite often if people want to get to the root of any paradigm, follow the money. And with carbon gases and carbon taxes and the whole climate change or global warming paradigm, I think that's another example of that. Just follow the money and you'll see the agendas at work. And after that, and once once you can dispose of that paradigm or look critically at that paradigm, it's then that we need to scratch beneath the surface and look at what's really going on. Exactly, exactly. I'll, I'll give you another one because, I mean, there's lots of things that go through our mind. Uh, another one is a whole issue of consciousness. Mm. And... Um, 
uh, thought and mental ability and what is going on there. Uh, you may be aware that I'm very interested in serious studies of parapsychology, yeah. what are sometimes known as paranormal phenomena. And this, again, is something that has been um, brushed aside by mainstream science, mainstream academics. is something that you don't even touch. I got very interested in this through my studies of ancient cultures, because the ancient cultures consistently talk about what we might call paranormal phenomena or psychic phenomena for lack of a you know better term and they took this as very real some of their monuments were tied in with that so I've looked into that and there's something going on there I'm absolutely convinced and I talked about this in the last chapter of Forgotten Civilization some of it we may start to be able to explain with um, you know quantum, I hate to bring up the term because most people don't understand it, they just think they do because they hear the term, but, you know, through uh, advances in quantum physics, that type of thing. Uh, the real bottom line there for me, again, is that we're all interconnected, these things are much more complex than uh, the standard paradigm or worldview wants to accept. Yeah. Most academics, they hear certain words and they just turn off completely. Uh, the materialistic point of view is still very prominent in, prominent in academia. That it, everything is mind. I'm sorry. Everything is matter and energy. Mind, thought, consciousness is just an epiphenomenon. Doesn't really exist. Uh, you and I don't really think about things. It's just a bunch of uh, you know chemical and electrical reactions in a, a mass of um, brain tissue so that's that's another another aspect there's so many things yeah there really is so much going on and of course it, it it's all interlinked or will someday in the uh, probably distant distant future be found to be interlinked but at the moment i think uh, the mainstream be it political or otherwise isn't really in favor of people knowing this no, 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 they aren't. I mean, they want to, uh, I, I don't want to be a conspiracist type, but I've learned over the years there are real conspiracies. Yeah, yeah. And then there's also just uh, people who don't want to be bothered. They don't want their worldviews challenged. They just want to be left alone. They don't want to be troubled by new thoughts. And I think that's a terrible shame, but there's a lot of people like that. I'm not talking about... Even the general public, I'm talking about my academic colleagues, my scientific colleagues that, you know, it's much easier for them to make a living and get promotion, get paid or whatever by staying with the mainstream paradigm. They make a few little, you know, refinements to it, perhaps they... I think of the classic saying in the 19th century that, you know, you figure out the speed of light to the next decimal place, and that's your contribution to science, you know, whatever. And, but you're not challenging the actual paradigm. You're not really looking at anything new or thinking about things um, more vigorously or with fresh eyes. So if there's good evidence for, I'll use the example of telepathy, you know, mind-to-mind -mind interaction without anything intervening. No matter how good the evidence is, and there's some very good evidence that this can occur at times, they just dismiss it because it would be so anomalous to their worldview, their mindset, that they just can't deal with it. 
Or likewise, the global warming situation, some people have such vested interest that it has to be anthropogenic. It has to be caused by humans. And they have so money, much money vested in that, that paradigm that they don't want to hear any evidence to the contrary. Yeah. Well, we'll keep the fingers crossed and hope that things will change. And it's through work such as the work that you're doing and so many other good researchers around the world. And I think increasingly so. You mentioned consciousness. I think there is an expansion or an opening up of consciousness um, all over the world. And I think people are starting to realize that things aren't always as they seem. And I'm very encouraged by that. So. Uh, a big thank you for the work that you are doing. I'd love to have you back on, Robert. I feel like we could speak for weeks about the various topics. I mean, one tangent leads to another and it's all just as relevant. So hopefully you will come back on to us here at Alchemy Radio. But before we go, how can people find out more about you, how to buy the books, check out your information online and that kind of thing? Uh, the best bet is to go to my website, which is www.robertshock.com. So to spell it, to make sure everyone gets it correctly, it's amazing how many people misspell my surname, my last name. My last name is spelled S-C-H-O-C-H. So it's www.robertschoch.com. And if you go there, you'll see a link to Forgotten Civilization, my latest book. It's also available on Amazon. So I encourage people to go to Amazon. Also, I will be taking people on tours. I take people on tours, and I post that. As, I, as things come together, I post that on my website right now. I have a tour uh, that I'm planning to take people on in, I think it's July, this coming summer, to Turkey and Petra. And that should be very exciting. If some people have heard of him, Robert Bouval who is a friend and colleague of mine, mm. will be joining me on that tour. So if people would like to spend a couple of weeks with us looking at ancient sites, uh, that would be great. It's not posted yet, but in the future, near future, I'm probably going to post something about Peru, going to Peru and Bolivia to see a site named Markawasi that we didn't even touch on. I'll probably uh, be back in Egypt at the end of the year, depending on the politics. So go to my website and people can find out more there. I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. Robert Schock, it's been fantastic speaking to you today on Alchemy Radio. Thanks very much for coming on air. Ah, my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Alchemy Radio. Where in the world's a forgotten inside your memory You're dragging on Your heart's been broken As we all go down in history Where in the world did the time go? Spirit seems to roam Like losing faith to our abandon Or an empty hallway from a broken home Well, don't look away From the arms of a bad dream 
Sometimes you're better lost than to be This week's episode of Alchemy Radio. Remember, we rely on donations to keep the show in its current free and advertising-free format, and we're extremely grateful for any and all help you can offer. We have no fixed cost on the donations, and every little helps. So, for example, if you could spare even the price of a bag of chips or french fries in the States every month, this would go a long way towards keeping us afloat. Our donate button is on the website, and your support and assistance is hugely appreciated, and thank you to everybody who has donated over the last few weeks. 
Our next guest is Hugh Newman, and we're going to be talking about indigo children, oversized skeletons, Gobekli Tepe, and lots, lots more. Until then, I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. Alchemy Radio. Alchemy Radio. Analyze. Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in?